What happened to Kennedy is what nearly happened to me. His story is the same as mine. The security forces were in cahoots with the extremists. Do you think Oswald was a front? Everything leads me to believe it. They got their hands on this communist who wasn't one while still being one. He had a subpar intellect and was an exalted fanatic. Just the man they needed, the perfect one to be accused. The guy ran away because he probably became suspicious. They wanted to kill him on the spot before he could be grabbed by the judicial system. Unfortunately, it didn't happen exactly the way they had probably planned it would. But a trial, you realize, is just terrible. People would have talked. They would have dug up so much. They would have unearthed everything. Then the security forces went looking for a cleanup man they totally controlled and who couldn't refuse their offer, and that guy sacrificed himself to kill the fake assassin supposedly in defense of Kennedy's memory. Baloney! Security forces all over the world are the same when they do this kind of dirty work. As soon as they succeed in wiping out the false assassin, they declare that the justice system no longer need be concerned that no further public action was needed now that the guilty perpetrator was dead. Better to assassinate an innocent man than to let a civil war break out. Better an injustice than disorder. America is in danger of upheavals, but you'll see. All of them together will observe the law of silence. They will close ranks. They'll do everything to stifle the scandal. They will throw Noah's cloak over those shameful deeds in order to not lose face in front of the whole world, in order to not risk unleashing riots in the United States in order to preserve the Union and to avoid a new civil war, in order to not ask themselves questions. They don't want to know. They don't want to find out. They won't allow themselves to find out. French President Charles de Gaulle, in conversation with his information minister, Alain Pierrefitte, shortly after de Gaulle returned from JFK's funeral in late 1963, Assassination is an extreme measure not normally used in clandestine operations. It should be assumed that it will never be ordered or authorized by any U.S. headquarters, though the latter may, in rare instances, agree to its execution by members of an associated foreign service. This reticence is partly due to the necessity for committing communications to paper. No assassination instructions should ever be written or recorded. Consequently, the decision to employ this technique must nearly always be reached in the field, at the area where the act will take place. Decision and instructions should be confined to an absolute minimum of persons. Ideally, only one person will be involved. No report may be made, but usually the act will be properly covered by normal news services whose output is available to all concerned. Murder is not morally justifiable. Killing a political leader whose burgeoning career is a clear and present danger to the cause of freedom may be held necessary. But assassination can seldom be employed with a clear conscience. Persons who are morally squeamish should not attempt it. 
A Study of Assassination, Top Secret CIA Document from Late 1953, Not Declassified Until 1997. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Greetings and salutations, dear listener. This is CJ, and yes, I do still live. And so, despite the long hiatus, does this podcast. Just a few updates in case you've been wondering where I've been and what I've been up to. And, you know, you've gotten some little bits and pieces of this if you follow me on social media. And back when I did um, the last live stream that I did, which would have been maybe back in, I don't even know, July or August. You got a little bit on what was going on then, but a lot has happened in my life between now and then. Now, if you're somebody who doesn't give a rat's ass about, you know, me or what I'm going through or what's going on, feel free to skip ahead until you hear the music again. But for those of you who know me, care about me, longtime listeners, people I've met in person at various events and things, um, I just want to let everybody know what's been going on with me the past few months. So as many of you know, I had a really hard time back around August. I had been sober for about six months then, but my depression got really bad and there were severe financial stresses on my family. And because of those things, my marriage was on the rocks and my depression was likely as bad as it's ever been in my adult life and possibly as bad as it's ever been in my entire life. It was bad. I had to claw my way out of a very dark place. And I started to manage to do that, and I started to repair my marriage and my relationship with my wife that was good. And then in September, because of financial necessity, I had to take on a full-time job that's unrelated to the podcast, which I'm still working as of this recording. And I did it because I desperately needed extra money in a hurry. And so the income from the job, while not stupendous, is at least helping there, and perhaps even more helpful, I'm able to get health insurance for myself and my family through this job that I'm working, which was a big help because we were getting health insurance ever since I quit working at the college back in August of 22. We'd been getting our health insurance through my wife's work, and my wife's job pays fairly well, but the health insurance through the job, unfortunately, is pretty pricey. And so by me taking on a full-time job that doesn't pay as much as her job, but that has more affordable health benefits, that was a big help to my family. On the downside, it's meant that ever since September, I've been working a ton on non-podcast related stuff. And this has been unfortunately eating up some of my time and energy, a lot of my time and energy. And in addition to that, my schedule, my work schedule has been erratic up until recently at this job. Fortunately, that seems to be normalizing now where at least most weeks I'll have the same days, you know, that I'm on versus off, which up until, you know, this week, basically from September up until this week, 
My work schedule has been all over the place, very different from week to week in terms of which days I'm on, which days I'm off. And that's made it very difficult to do things like do much podcasting and to do things like schedule any interview episodes with anybody, to schedule live streams, all those sorts of things. So that was already there. And then in early November, I made my trip out to Texas to attend and speak at Jack Spierko's TSP 23 event, which was really cool. And I was able to, despite how short, you know, my time was there in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, I still was able to fit in a little side jaunt to go to Dealey Plaza and go up, you know, to the sixth floor mansion and walk around the plaza up to the grassy knoll, all that stuff in anticipation of the JFK assassination miniseries that I've been working on for a while and that unfortunately I still have not been able to make the first episode of because of all these things going on in my life. And then when I got back from Texas, I worked something like eight days in a row at my job that I have now. And then I got through that and I was like, all right, now I can really, you know, get cracking on getting the first installment of the JFK assassination miniseries that I wanted to release in November of 2023, the 60th anniversary of the assassination. And this is also, by the way, a miniseries commissioned by one of the excellent individuals that made a generous contribution to my Indiegogo campaign back in 2022. But unfortunately, not long after I finished working eight days straight after getting home from Texas, I got an emergency phone call at work from my younger daughter who still lives at home. My older daughter is off to college now. And basically, my wife was having such intense and insane back pain that they had to call an ambulance to come get her from my house to take her to the local hospital. I wasn't able to do it in a timely fashion because I was working And the job that I'm working right now is actually in a different county from where I live. So it's a 30, 40 minute drive. And so she was in such excruciating pain that she could not wait for me to drive home to get her and bring her to the hospital myself. Now, my wife has had serious back pain and back issues off and on for over 20 years. Much of it stemming from a fall and injury that she had um, not too long before she and I met. And unfortunately, on top of that back injury leading to chronic back problems, my wife has several other chronic medical problems that cause her various types of pain and issues. And because of that, she has had many different kinds of surgeries over the years. But anyway, this back injury was bad enough that she was taken by ambulance to the hospital, ended up having to stay in the hospital for over a week and got back surgery. Now, this was her third back surgery, and I believe her 12th or 13th surgery overall that she's had. So when I tell you she's got multiple chronic medical problems that, you know, cause serious issues for her, I am not kidding because most of those surgeries have been related to one or more of her chronic medical problems. So not long before Thanksgiving, she had the surgery and then came home. But unfortunately, her recovery from the latest surgery has not been going well. It has been going a lot worse than was the case with her previous two back surgeries. And while she's not in a wheelchair yet, she's pretty disabled and in a lot of pain a lot of the time. Whereas with her previous back surgery, she got a fair amount of pain relief pretty quickly after getting the surgery. So we're worried, you know, not only is she still not the most mobile, Like, she can get around the house okay most of the time, and, you know, she can go to the store and and do a shopping trip, but usually, like, that's it. You know, she has to 
come home, rest, and probably take some pain meds after doing something as simple as going to the grocery store to go shopping. So, ever since roughly mid-November, things have been a complete clusterfuck for me. Because while I've been working my ass off at the job I'm working now, I've also been obviously trying to help my wife as best I can with all of this. You know, trying to visit her as much as I could when she was in the hospital for over a week, and then doing my best to take care of her as much as I can while still working this job for the last couple of months. And that's been the main reason that I haven't put podcasts out in a while, has been dealing with all of that. On top of that, we had yet another death in the family. Near the end of 2023, my wife's grandmother, who was her last surviving grandparent, died of natural causes two days before Christmas. On December 23rd, 2023, she went to the hospital and, you know, she's been in the hospital fairly regularly over the last few years, as is so often the case with someone in their 90s. In fact, she was almost the exact same age as my late grandfather, who I talked about a few months ago after he died in August. I think she was only a matter of months younger than him. And like him, she not only lived a long and full life, but she remained mentally sharp right on up to the very end. So a couple days before Christmas, she was having some issues, went into the hospital, and basically, you know, by evening time, she had passed away. So on top of trying to help my wife, who's now fairly crippled, and dealing with everything from that, I've also, you know, been trying my best to help her with getting through this. She was heavily involved in, like, organizing the funeral and all that stuff, so it's been uh, very stressful. And then my wife has been out of work ever since... Her back went out on her back in mid-November and, you know, just simply unable to go back to work. So on top of dealing with her being in so much pain and so crippled, we've also been dealing with severe financial strains again. And it's increasingly looking like she's not going to be able to return to work. She just physically won't be able to. And that is an extremely stressful and terrifying and depressing prospect because her job has been the biggest source of income to us ever since I resigned my job teaching college history back in August of 22. So I have no idea what's going to happen. I have no idea how we're going to get through this. And it is angry and depressing, and I'm struggling as hard as I can to not fall back into the pit of mental despair like I was in back in August. Meanwhile, I'm also, of course, still on the wagon so, despite all the constant emergencies and stresses I've been dealing with, particularly over the last several months, at least I've managed to not relapse back into being a drunk. But it hasn't always been easy, and if anything, the depression has been an even bigger struggle. And I'm just, I'm just tired of everything, you know? I'm tired of this constant Book of Job routine where when one thing seems to be getting a little bit better, two things go wrong that are even worse than the first thing. You know, I was just starting to claw my way out of dark depression, and I was succeeding in repairing my relationship with my wife, and then this happens. So I'm just struggling as hard as I can to keep going and to not fall down to where I was. But yeah, my wife said to me near the end of 2023 that it was the worst year of her life. And it was probably the worst year of mine, too. I feel like everything got derailed for me into a dark alternate timeline. 
starting in the spring of 2020. And it's almost sort of like when Biff in Back to the Future 2 steals the sports almanac, old Biff in the future, goes back in time to young Biff, gives it to him so he he can become super rich by betting on sporting events. And then when Marty goes back to 1985, Biff is the richest guy and, you know, owns everything and it's a horrible dystopia in Hill Valley. That's kind of how I feel like my life has been since the COVID lockdown madness started in March of 2020. And 2020 was a terrible year for me. 2021 was worse. And 2022 was worse than that. And 2023 was worse than that. So yeah, worst year of my life, 2023, second worst, 22, third worst, 21, fourth worst, 2020. And I'm trying, I'm trying to keep a stiff upper lip, especially around my wife as much as I can, but holy shit, it's hard. So anyway, that's what I'm struggling with. So right now I could use, you know, any words of encouragement you want to send me, any financial contributions you want to send me. I can use any help I can get. Please though, try to not throw in any sort of unsolicited advice because that doesn't help and that'll just piss me off. So anyway, I'm really, really, really hoping that 2024 is going to be when I finally am able to start turning things really around in a big way. Because the last four years, there have been some bright spots here and there to be sure, but the last four years overall have felt like a dystopian alternate timeline that I somehow fell into, that I shouldn't have had to go through, that this is something that shouldn't have happened. And it's really, really hard to be optimistic when, for basically four years, every time you've thought it's going to get better, it gets worse. So, I hope you are and have been doing better than me in recent months, dear listener. And if you haven't been, I feel for you. So yeah, like I said, because of all the horrible things that have been happening, and by the way, there have been a bunch of other bad things happening over the past several months of smaller scale than what I've shared with you. So it's not just the things I've mentioned here. There have been a bunch of other smaller problems and disasters and things that have just been making my life very difficult and stressful, nonstop. So because of all that, I have not been able to make my first JFK assassination episode, but I wanted to get something out there because it's been so long since the last time I published a new episode. So I decided to share some excerpts and provide a little bit of commentary on a CIA document that has some relevance to the Kennedy assassination. At the very least, tangentially, and perhaps more than that. It's a CIA document called A Study of Assassination, that was written and promulgated in the top-secret circles of the national security state roughly around the end of the year 1953, a decade before Kennedy's assassination. This document was top-secret until it was declassified in 1997. 
So for 44 years, this thing was top secret. Vast majority of the American people had no ability to access this document. The context in which it was written was Operation PB Success, which you may recall is the codename for the top secret CIA operation that overthrew the democratically elected government of Jacobo Arbenzi Guzman in Guatemala and replaced him with a military dictatorship that went on to commit crimes that have been characterized by multiple human rights organizations and things like that as genocide in Guatemala with the active and knowing help of Uncle Sam. I did a DHP episode many years ago that now lives behind the paywall as part of my vintage DHP episodes, and it was, I don't remember the episode number, but the title was Uncle Sam versus Democracy Part 2. Part 1 was about the CIA overthrowing the democratically elected government of Iran shortly before this operation against Guatemala. In both cases, democratically elected governments that were center-left nationalist but not communist were overthrown by CIA operations and replaced with much more authoritarian but American-favored regimes. And basically, in both cases, it was corporate interests that were being threatened. U.S. and British oil interests in Iran, in the case of that country, and primarily tropical fruit companies, especially United Fruit, who thought their interests were being threatened in Guatemala, in the case of that country. Now, in both the case of Mohammed Mossadegh, the democratically elected prime minister of Iran who was overthrown, and Yacoba Arbenz, the democratically elected president of Guatemala who was overthrown, in both cases, the leader that was overthrown was ultimately not killed. But their lives, you know, they were removed from political power, even though they had been, uh, both of them, legitimately democratically elected. But also, both of them, their lives were essentially ruined in various ways. And both Mossadegh and his family, as well as Arbenz and his family, really, you know, were just kind of sent on a negative trajectory after the CIA had their way with them. But the fact that this document was written and promulgated while the operation against Guatemala was still going on shows you that they were seriously considering just killing Arbenz. And by the way, they killed and attempted to kill many other leaders, some of them democratically elected as well, from the early 50s onward. In some cases, CIA operatives did the assassination directly. In other cases, they outsourced them to others. But, you know, the CIA was heavily involved in assassinating Patrice Lumumba, the democratically elected president of the Congo, a bit later. And, of course, they tried numerous times to kill Fidel Castro. They also tried to kill French President Charles de Gaulle. The CIA helped with that. It was kind of hardcore right-wing elements of the French military and intelligence services that were behind trying to kill and overthrow de Gaulle. And their motivation was primarily they were angry that de Gaulle was giving Algeria its independence and also in general following a policy of decolonization of, you know, France giving up the bulk of its overseas empire in the 1950s and 60s. Ultimately, the CIA-backed French extremists failed in their efforts to overthrow or assassinate de Gaulle. But, you know, it shows you that the CIA was quite willing not only to overthrow legitimately democratically elected 
leaders in other countries. But even in the case of a country like France that was nominally a close ally of the U.S. at the time, that was part of NATO, you know, you might expect that they would do dirty things in countries like Guatemala, Iran, Congo. But to know that they were also doing these sorts of things in countries like France, or Italy for that matter, reveals that these sorts of people, right on up to the top, Alan Dulles, the psychopathic head of the CIA, from 1953 to 1961, that he and his immediate subordinate henchmen were just complete psychopaths who had no regard for ethics or laws, either domestic or international, and that they were willing to kill or overthrow anybody that they saw as a threat to how they wanted to run the world. And dear listener, let's be real. Do you really think that these people and institutions that wouldn't bat an eye at assassinating French President Charles de Gaulle? that wouldn't lose any sleep over overthrowing or assassinating other democratically elected leaders, even in countries that were supposedly close allies of the U.S., if you think the people and institutions that thought that way about those things would have any real hesitations, other than maybe, you know, practical problems to be overcome when it comes to assassinating, oh, I don't know, a U.S. president that they felt was going too far off the reservation of what the establishment was willing to tolerate, then I don't know what to tell you, other than you're ridiculously naive and heavily propagandized. So anyway, I'm going to be going through a bunch of excerpts from this document. I believe it runs about 19 pages long, something like that. I'm not going to be reading every word and every passage, but I'm going to try and share some interesting stuff. Because this is a very neat window into what the higher-ups in the CIA were thinking about and talking about in the early Cold War. And while, of course, a document like this comes nowhere near to proving that elements of the CIA were ultimately behind killing John F. Kennedy, it's at the very least highly suggestive circumstantial evidence. This document is something that could be considered sort of like a character witness to Alan Dulles and most of the top CIA officials of the time, most of whom were his cronies and henchmen. So here we go. A study of assassination. The document starts with definition. Quote, Assassination is a term thought to be derived from hashish, a drug similar to marijuana, said to have been used by Hassan ibn Sabah to induce motivation in his followers, who were assigned to carry out political and other murders, usually at the cost of their lives. End quote. Now that's really kind of a weird thing to start with. And all I can figure is that a disproportionate number of the higher-ups in the CIA at the time were highly educated Ivy League graduates from wealthy blue-blood families. Now, those guys were not mostly the guys directly getting their hands dirty. There was sort of a class system in the CIA in the 50s and 60s, possibly longer, but for sure in the 50s and 60s, where Ivy League-educated guys from blue-chip families like Alan Dulles made the decisions, made the calls. They decided, you know, who needed to be whacked and who needed to be overthrown and whatever. But those sorts of guys almost never were directly involved in the dirty work. 
Instead, when it came to actually doing the dirty work, the CIA would typically rely on either outsourcing it to, say, organized crime people, foreign intelligence services, mercenaries, things like that. Or if they did have direct CIA agents or assets involved in something like an assassination, the sorts of guys who would do that were usually from more blue-collar, humble backgrounds. They were people that somebody like Alan Dulles would look down on, culturally, but would find highly useful. These guys who would get their hands dirty were likely to be non-wasps. But anyway, a lot of these guys like Alan Dulles, James Jesus Angleton, and so forth, these top CIA guys of the 50s and 60s, a lot of them kind of always retained some degree of like the self-image of a scholar. You know, they kind of took pride in knowing about literature and history and these sorts of things. They saw themselves as quite cultured and in many ways they were. And that's the only thing I can think of of why they would start off this document with that reference to medieval Islamic assassins as the source of the term assassin. Anyway, the document continues, quote, It is here used to describe the planned killing of a person who is not under the legal jurisdiction of the killer who is not physically in the hands of the killer, who has been selected by a resistance organization for death, and whose death provides positive advantages to that organization. End quote. And then the next couple of paragraphs are basically the part of this document that I shared in the intro, right after the stuff about Charles de Gaulle and his take on the JFK assassination. But I do want to repeat one of the lines that I shared there. Quote, Killing a political leader whose burgeoning career is a clear and present danger to the cause of freedom may be held necessary. End quote. Now you have to understand what would be meant by someone like Alan Dulles or James Jesus Angleton when they say that a political figure is a clear and present danger to the cause of freedom. They don't really mean the cause of freedom the way somebody like me would mean it if I use that term. They mean anybody who's potentially in the way of them running the U.S. government and most of the world, or at least, you know, at the time, the world outside of the communist realm, the way they wanted to. So threat to the cause of freedom really means threat to Alan Dulles's freedom to go around the world playing God, assassinating foreign leaders and overthrowing their governments at will, and doing so typically in the interests, first and foremost, of major U.S. corporations and also to the interests of the national security state and Cold War policy as they existed at the time, because this was the bipartisan consensus of the establishment elements of both major political parties at the time. So they say it may be necessary to kill a leader if his career is a threat to freedom, by which they mean their freedom to run things the way they want to. Do you really think they would hesitate to kill a president that they saw very much from their perspective as a clear and present danger to the cause of freedom? I don't think they would. Skipping down under the next section heading, Classifications. Quote, The techniques employed will vary according to whether the subject is unaware of his danger, aware but unguarded, or guarded. They will also be affected by whether or not the assassin is to be killed with the subject. Hereafter, assassinations in which the subject is unaware will be termed simple. 
those where the subject is aware but unguarded will be termed chase. And those where the victim is guarded will be termed guarded. If the assassin is to die with the subject, the act will be called lost. If the assassin is to escape, the adjective will be safe. It should be noted that no compromises should exist here. The assassin must not fall alive into enemy hands. End quote. Or if he does, he needs to be whacked as soon as possible before he opens his mouth too much. Jack Ruby, anybody? Paging Jack Ruby. Continuing, quote, A further type division is caused by the need to conceal the fact that the subject was actually the victim of an assassination, rather than an accident or natural causes. If such concealment is desirable, the operation will be called secret. If concealment is immaterial, the act will be called open. While if the assassination requires publicity to be effective, it will be termed terroristic. Following these definitions, the assassination of Julius Caesar was safe, simple, and terroristic, while that of Huey Long was lost, guarded, and open. Obviously, successful secret assassinations are not recorded as assassinations at all. End quote. The next heading down is The Assassin. Quote, in safe assassinations, the assassin needs the usual qualities of a clandestine agent. He should be determined, courageous, intelligent, resourceful, and physically active. If special equipment is to be used, such as firearms or drugs, it is clear that he must have outstanding skill with such equipment. Except in terroristic assassinations, it is desirable that the assassin be transient in the area. He should have an absolute minimum of contact with the rest of the organization, and his instructions should be given orally by one person only. His safe evacuation after the act is absolutely essential, but here again, contact should be as limited as possible. It is preferable that the person issuing instructions also conduct any withdrawal or covering action which may be necessary. In lost assassination, the assassin must be a fanatic of some sort. Politics, religion, and revenge are about the only feasible motives. Since a fanatic is unstable psychologically, he must be handled with extreme care. He must not know the identities of the other members of the organization, for although it is intended that he die in the act, something may go wrong. While the assassin of Trotsky has never revealed any significant information, it was unsound to depend on this when the act was planned. End quote. The next section is labeled planning, and I just want to share one line from that section. Quote, All planning must be mental. No papers should ever contain evidence of the operation. End quote. The operation, of course, in this case, being the assassination. Next, we have a section with the heading techniques. Quote, the essential point of assassination is the death of the subject. A human being may be killed in many ways, but sureness is often overlooked by those who may be emotionally unstrung by the seriousness of this act they intend to commit. The specific technique employed will depend upon a large number of variables, but should be constant in one point. Death must be 
absolutely certain. The attempt on Hitler's life failed because the conspiracy did not give this matter proper attention. Techniques may be considered as follows. 1. Manual It is possible to kill a man with the bare hands, but very few are skillful enough to do it well. Even a highly trained judo expert will hesitate to risk killing by hand unless he has absolutely no alternative. However, the simplest local tools are often much the most efficient means of assassination. A hammer, axe, wrench, screwdriver, fire poker, kitchen knife, lampstand, or anything hard, heavy, and handy will suffice. A length of rope, or wire, or a belt will do if the assassin is strong and agile. All such improvised weapons will have the important advantage of availability and apparent innocence. The obviously lethal machine gun failed to kill Trotsky, where an item of sporting goods succeeded. In all safe cases, where the assassin may be subject to search, either before or after the act, specialized weapons should not be used. Even in the lost case, the assassin may accidentally be searched before the act and should not carry an incriminating device if any sort of lethal weapon can be improvised at or near the site. If the assassin normally carries weapons because of the nature of his job, it may still be desirable to improvise and implement at the scene to avoid disclosure of his identity. 2. Accidents For secret assassination, either simple or chase, the contrived accident is the most effective technique. When successfully executed, it causes little excitement and is only casually investigated. The most efficient accident in simple assassination is a fall of 75 feet or more onto a hard surface. Elevator shafts, stairwells, unscreened windows, and bridges will serve. Bridge falls into water are not reliable. In simple cases, A private meeting with the subject may be arranged at a properly cased location. The act may be executed by sudden, vigorous, missing word, of the ankles, tipping the subject over the edge. End quote. I'm guessing the word that's missing after vigorous was probably, you know, something along the lines of grabbing or yanking or wrenching or pulling up or something. Anyway, back to the document. Quote, If the assassin immediately sets up an outcry, playing the horrified witness, no alibi or surreptitious withdrawal is necessary. In chase cases, it will usually be necessary to stun or drug the subject before dropping him. Care is required to ensure that no wound or condition not attributable to the fall is discernible after death. Yes, the contrived accident is the best technique for secret assassination, they say, and of the contrived accident, the best one is the fall of 75 feet or more. There have been a lot of those. Anytime you see, you know, somebody who might have been very much in the crosshairs of certain elements of the CIA who suddenly dies from a fall, whether it's made to look like an accident or a suicide, I'm not saying it's never what actually happened, because obviously people do die from actual innocent, you know, non-assassination falls, I mean, or from suicide by jumping off a height. 
So you can't always assume that every time somebody who is, you know, in some sort of a troubling relationship to an agency like the CIA dies, that it is always 100% of the time an assassination. But the point is, it could be. And so if there's anything at all in terms of additional suspicious evidence that makes it look even the slightest bit questionable whether the person really died of either accident or suicide in the case of a high fall, especially. You should look closely at it. And one notorious case that very clearly looks like foul play from this same time period, I think just several years later, is the case of Frank Olson. And Frank Olson is perhaps the most famous death that's associated with the MK Ultra mind control experiments. Frank Olson was a U.S. Army chemist who in the 1950s was working with the CIA on some MK Ultra related stuff. And apparently he had some sort of a profound experience while tripping on LSD, you know, as some of these people were experimenting on each other, basically. And it apparently made him seriously doubt and question a lot of things he had done in relationship to the Cold War, including in the Korean War, things like this, that he started to feel really guilty about some of the things he had been affiliated with as a chemist for the U.S. military. And after having some issues and running into some trouble with his superiors and handlers from the CIA, he, under mysterious circumstances, allegedly jumped like running straight through a glass window at a hotel in New York City and, you know, ran right through the glass, crashing into his death. I forget, six, seven stories down, something like that. Now, this death was initially just, you know, covered up, made to look like a random suicide, not connected to anything with the U.S. government or the CIA, etc. But then when some of the CIA's dirty laundry started to come out in the 1970s, they switched to Plan B, which is a limited hangout. And the limited hangout was... Oh, yeah, Frank Olson, he and his death was connected to the MKUltra program because, you see, apparently while experimenting on himself with LSD, he had a bad trip and, you know, just went nuts and ultimately ran out a window and killed himself like kids and all those just say no to drugs type movies that deal with, you know, acid trips. Oh, yeah, if you take acid, you're going to think you can fly and jump off a building or whatever. So that was the limited hangout. Yes, it was a horrible accident caused by these shady experiments in mind control drugs. That this guy had a bad trip, lost his mind, and committed suicide. But eventually more evidence came out that made it highly suggestive that Frank Olson was actually killed. That his CIA handlers were worried that because of the experience of the acid trip that he had, which made him question all of his career and morality and all these sorts of things, that they had become worried that he was going to start talking publicly about things they desperately didn't want anyone to talk publicly about. And so they ultimately decided this guy had to go, that he was now a loose cannon and couldn't be trusted anymore. And so they killed him. And what they did was they hit him in the head with some sort of a blunt object, perhaps a blackjack, and knocked him unconscious, maybe even killed him, and then tossed him out a window. And the idea being that any coroner, any investigator is just going to look at the evidence and go, oh yeah, clearly a case of suicide open and shut. They're not going to look too closely. They're not going to examine the body too closely for other, you know, evidence of non-jumping-to-your-death related injuries and things. And if you want a really, really well-done miniseries looking into the death of Frank Olson, which I always highly recommend, watch Wormwood 
on Netflix. It's a miniseries, like six or eight episodes, something like that. Wormwood came out, I want to say, four or five years ago. And it's all about the death of Frank Olson. And it's very good and very much worth watching. Seymour Hirsch ultimately gets involved. And if you know anything about him, you know he's perhaps the best living journalist when it comes to really digging in to things that agencies like the CIA really don't want anyone digging into. Anyway, back to the document, quote, Falls into the sea or swiftly flowing rivers may suffice if the subject cannot swim. It will be more reliable if the assassin can arrange to attempt rescue, as he can thus be sure of the subject's death and at the same time establish a workable alibi. If the subject's personal habits make it feasible, alcohol may be used to prepare him for a contrived accident of any kind. End quote. There you go. As long as the person has some sort of a reputation for being a drinker, as long as they don't have a reputation for being a teetotaler or whatever, which would then make, you know, alcohol seem wildly out of place, use alcohol to increase the appearance of accident. Back to the document, quote, falls before trains or subway cars are usually effective, but require exact timing and can seldom be free from unexpected observation, end quote. And this one makes me think of the case of the two young boys, I guess they were teenagers, in Mena, Arkansas, in, I believe it was the late 80s, who died mysteriously. They were run over by a train, and the official story was that they had been out, you know, gallivanting around and they had gotten really stoned, and, you know, once again, like Frank Olson having a bad trip jumping out a window, these two teenage boys got so stoned that they randomly decided to lay down and take a nap on railroad tracks and got ran over by a train. And the more likely story when you look at more of the evidence is that those boys were actually out by the airport that Barry Seal was using with his little private cargo air force, CIA-sponsored, of course, of drug runners who were running drugs into Arkansas in the 80s uh, while Bill Clinton was governor of Arkansas and George H.W. Bush was vice president of the United States. And that these two young boys saw something out there by Barry Seal's airport they shouldn't have seen, a drug deal, who knows, and that the bad guys whacked them and decided that the best thing to do would be to throw their bodies on train tracks. That way the train runs them over, their bodies get all mangled, and nobody really looks too closely into, did these guys really die by getting run over by a train? Did they really just get so stoned that they decided taking a nap on railroad tracks was a good idea? Or were they somehow, you know, killed or at least incapacitated beforehand and then left on the tracks for the train to, you know, kind of cover it up? Back to the document, quote, Automobile accidents are a less satisfactory means of assassination. If the subject is deliberately run down, very exact timing is necessary. An investigation is likely to be thorough. If the subject's car is tampered with, reliability is very low. The subject may be stunned or drugged and then placed in the car, but this is only reliable when the car can be run off a high cliff or into deep water without observation. End quote. And skipping down a little bit, we have section three, drugs. Quote, in all types of assassination except terroristic, drugs can be very effective. If the assassin is trained as a doctor or nurse and the subject is under medical care, this is an easy and rare method. An overdose of morphine administered as a sedative will cause death without disturbance and is difficult to detect. 
The size of the dose will depend upon whether the subject has been using narcotics regularly. If not, two grains will suffice. If the subject drinks heavily, morphine or a similar narcotic can be injected at the passing out stage, and the cause of death will often be held to be acute alcoholism. End quote. Skipping down a little bit, we have some commentary on edge weapons, which is heading number four. Quote, Any locally obtained edge device may be successfully employed. A certain minimum of anatomical knowledge is needed for reliability. Puncture wounds of the body cavity may not be reliable unless the heart is reached. The heart is protected by the rib cage and is not always easy to locate. Abdominal wounds were once nearly always mortal, but modern medical treatment has made this no longer true. Dagnabbit. I inserted that, of course. Absolute reliability is obtained by severing the spinal cord in the cervical region. This can be done with the point of a knife or a light blow of an axe or hatchet. Another reliable method is the severing of both jugular and carotid blood vessels on both sides of the windpipe. If the subject has been rendered unconscious by other wounds or drugs, either of the above methods can be used to ensure death. 5. Blunt Weapons As with edge weapons, blunt weapons require some anatomical knowledge for effective use. Their main advantage is their universal availability. A hammer may be picked up almost anywhere in the world. Baseball and word-missing may be cricket. Baseball and blank bats are very widely distributed. Even a rock or a heavy stick will do, and nothing resembling a weapon need be procured, carried, or subsequently disposed of. Blows should be directed to the temple, the area just below and behind the ear and the lower rear portion of the skull. Of course, if the blow is very heavy, any portion of the upper skull will do. The lower frontal portion of the head, from the eyes to the throat, can withstand enormous blows without fatal consequences. End quote. And uh, if I recall right, it's been a few years since the last time I rewatched it, but I'm pretty sure in Wormwood, when they're talking about Frank Olson, the conclusion that the film comes to is that most likely Frank Olson was, again, hit in the head possibly killed or at the very least just, you know, knocked unconscious and incapacitated by a blow to the head with a blunt object, possibly to the temple or some other sensitive area, vulnerable area of the skull, knocked unconscious, possibly killed either way, incapacitated, and then tossed out a window to try to make it look like the guy just, you know, committed suicide, whether on purpose or because of a bad acid trip and thought he could fly or whatever. Back to the document, and this next section is very interesting in light of my research in recent months on the JFK assassination. Section 6, Firearms. Firearms are often used in assassination, often very ineffectively. The assassin usually has insufficient technical knowledge of the limitations of weapons and expects more range, accuracy, and killing power than can be provided with reliability. Since certainty of death is the major requirement, Firearms should be used, which can provide destructive power at least 100% in excess of that thought to be necessary, and ranges should be half that considered practical for the weapon, end quote. So you want the gun to be more powerful than what you would deem, you know, adequate, and you want the range to be shorter than what you think is, you know, a reasonable, I don't know, maybe we might say a reasonable but kind of far shot. Back to the document, quote, Firearms have other drawbacks. Their possession is often incriminating, 
they may be difficult to obtain. They require a degree of experience from the user. They are word missing. Not sure. Uh, their word missing again is consistently overrated. I don't know, maybe lethality, something like that. Continuing. However, there are many cases in which firearms are probably more efficient than any other means. These cases usually involve distance between the assassin and the subject, or comparative physical weakness of the assassin, as with a woman. End quote. This is before the CIA got super woke, by the way, as you can tell. Back to the document, quote. A. The Precision Rifle In guarded assassination, a good hunting or target rifle should always be considered as a possibility. Absolute reliability can nearly always be achieved at a distance of 100 yards. In ideal circumstances, the range may be extended to 250 yards. The rifle should be a well-made bolt or falling block action type, handling a powerful long-range cartridge. The 300 FAB Magnum, and I'm not sure what that cartridge is, the FAB Magnum, the 300 Magnums that would have been around when this document would be written. Um, I don't think the 300 Win Mag was around yet. I could be wrong about that. But the most popular 300 Magnum at the time would have been, I believe, still the 300 H&H Magnum. And um, if memory serves, I think the 300 Weatherby might have been around by then. But most likely, I think this thing is talking about the 300 H&H Magnum and perhaps FAB is an abbreviation for another you know, name for the cartridge. I don't know. Anyway, continuing with the document, the 300 FAB Magnum is probably the best cartridge readily available. Other excellent calibers are 375 Magnum. Wow, that's a little bit overpowered for shooting a person. But I guess it'll do the job. Um, continuing. 270 Winchester, 30 out 6, 8 by 60 millimeter Magnum, 9.3 by 62, and others of this type. These are preferable to ordinary military calibers, since ammunition available for them is usually of the expanding bullet type, whereas most ammunition for military rifles is full jacketed and hence not sufficiently lethal. End quote. Now think about that passage in relation to the Kennedy assassination. We're told that all the shooting was done by Oswald using military full metal jacket style ammunition in his surplus manlicker Carcano. But here the CIA says, yeah, that kind of ammo is not lethal enough to ensure efficient assassination. And you want to use, you know, a hunting or target type round that's very powerful and that is using expanding bullets to improve, you know, the killing power. And for sure, at least some of the bullets that were fired at JFK seem to have been expanding or soft-nosed type bullets rather than full metal jacket military-style bullets. But anyway, back to the document, quote, The rifle may be of the bullgun variety, with extra heavy barrel and set triggers, but in any case should be capable of maximum precision. Ideally, the weapon should be able to group in one inch at 100 yards, but two and a half inch groups are adequate. The sight should be telescopic, not only for accuracy, but because such a sight is much better in dim light or near darkness. As long as the bare outline of the target is discernible, a telescope sight will work, even if the rifle and shooter are in total darkness. An expanding, hunting bullet of such calibers as described above will produce extravagant laceration and shock at shorter mid-range. If a man is struck just once in the body cavity, his death is almost entirely certain. 
public figures or guarded officials may be killed with great reliability and some safety if a firing point can be established prior to an official occasion. The propaganda value of this system may be very high. Okay, let me reread that passage one more time. Public figures or guarded officials may be killed with great reliability and some safety if a firing point can be established prior to an official occasion. The propaganda value of this system may be very high. End quote. Isn't that interesting? Next section, B, the machine gun. Machine guns may be used in most cases where the precision rifle is applicable. Usually this will require the subversion of a unit of an official guard at a ceremony, though a skillful and determined team might conceivably dispose of a loyal gun crew without commotion and take over the gun at the critical time. The area of fire capacity of the machine gun should not be used to search out a concealed subject. This was tried, with predictable lack of success on Trotsky. The automatic feature of the machine gun should rather be used to increase reliability by placing a five-second burst on the subject. Even with full-jacket ammunition, this will be absolutely lethal, as the burst pattern is no larger than a man. This can be accomplished at about 150 yards. In ideal circumstances, a properly padded and targeted machine gun can do it at 850 yards. The major difficulty is placing the first burst exactly on the target, as most machine gunners are trained to spot their fire on target by observation of strike. This will not do in assassination, as the subject will not wait. End quote. There follows a section on the submachine gun, which, if you don't know, is simply an automatic weapon that fires pistol-type rounds instead of rifle-type rounds. And among other things, it recommends a forty-five caliber submachine gun if you're going to try and use a submachine gun to assassinate somebody and it of course recommends close range and spraying a bunch of rounds right into the target of the assassination there's a brief passage on the shotgun which says as you might expect that it is a very devastating close range weapon very lethal but the range it says must be kept under 10 yards in order to ensure that the subject is killed then follows section e the pistol quote while the handgun is quite inefficient as a weapon of assassination, it is often used partly because it is readily available and can be concealed on the person, and partly because its limitations are not widely appreciated. While many well-known assassinations have been carried out with pistols, Lincoln, Harding, Gandhi, such attempts fail as often as they succeed. Truman, Roosevelt, Churchill. If a pistol is used, it should be as powerful as possible and fired from just beyond reach. The pistol and the shotgun are used in similar tactical situations, except that the shotgun is much more lethal and the pistol is much more easily concealed. In the hands of an expert, a powerful pistol is quite deadly, but such experts are rare and not usually available for assassination missions. End quote. I love that. Not usually available for assassination missions. Yeah, you know, the world's leading, uh, you know, competitive target shooters or whatever. They're not usually available. Their schedule's full. You know, they're busy shooting IDPA matches or whatever. They're not able to go whack people for the CIA, I guess, because they're busy. <laughs> it's just kind of funny how they worded it. Back to the document. Quote, 45 Colt, 44 Special, 455 KLY. I'm not sure what that is. 45, uh, I think it's 45 ACP, the U.S. auto pistol, you know, round, and 357 Magnum are all efficient calibers. Less powerful rounds can suffice, but are less reliable. Subpower cartridges, such as the 32s and 25, should be avoided. 
In all cases, the subject should be hit solidly at least three times for complete reliability. End quote. Isn't that interesting how they specifically say, don't use small caliber rounds, use big, powerful pistol rounds to make sure that the job gets done. And then you look at how many times we're told that somebody was successfully assass- assassinated or nearly so with a low caliber round, you know, with like a 22 or whatever. Wasn't Sirhan Sirhan allegedly shooting a 22 caliber revolver at RFK? And by the way, it was one of those magical movie guns that could fire more times than it could hold rounds, right? I think it was a revolver that, a revolver that held eight shots, if I remember right. And there's clear evidence that at least 10 or 11 shots were fired. And Sirhan never had any time or opportunity to reload, so don't tell me that. Anyway, back to the document. There's then a section about using suppressors in assassination. Um, not terribly interesting. And then a little bit further down, though, there's a section on explosives, which is a little bit interesting. Um, section 7, explosives, quote, Bombs and demolition charges of various sorts have been frequently used in assassination. Such devices in terroristic and open assassination can provide safety and overcome guard barriers. But it is curious that bombs have often been the implement of lost assassinations. The major factor which affects reliability is the use of explosives for assassination. The charge must be very large, and the detonation must be controlled exactly as to time by the assassin, who can observe the subject. A smaller, moderate explosive charge is highly unreliable as a cause of death, and time delay or booby trap devices are extremely prone to kill the wrong man. In addition to the moral aspects of indiscriminate killing, the death of casual bystanders can often produce public reactions unfavorable to the cause for which the assassination is carried out. End quote. So there you go. You know, I mean, you know, if you're one of those idiots, uh, unlike the psychopath Alan Dulles and most of the other people who have, you know, been high up in the CIA since its inception, if you're not a psychopath or sociopath like those people, you might actually be bothered by the moral considerations of, you know, taking out some innocent people as collateral damage when you're blowing up somebody in a, you know, assassination done by explosion. But perhaps more important than that, of course, is you might get bad publicity for your cause. Continuing, quote. Bombs or grenades should never be thrown at a subject. While this will always cause a commotion and may even result in the subject's death, it is sloppy, unreliable, and bad propaganda. That's very interesting. The charge must be too small and the assassin is never sure of, one, reaching his attack position, two, placing the charge close enough to the target, and three, firing the charge at the right time. End quote. It then goes on to talk a bit more about the technical aspects of trying to carry out assassination via explosive that are, at least in my opinion, not terribly interesting. There then is, I guess, an appendix in the document where there is conference room technique, which is basically a method complete with diagrams, like you're looking at a football play or something, a method whereby you pop into a conference room where I guess leaders that you want to kill are having a meeting and you spray them with a submachine gun. And again, it's very detailed and there's little diagrams. It's kind of funny if it wasn't so dark. But then again, I have a dark sense of humor, so I can still laugh at this crap. But anyway, that's basically it for this document. As you can see, it is interesting and amusing. It shows you kind of what the CIA was thinking in terms of assassinations as of the mid-1950s. 
And of course, wouldn't it be awesome if you could get your hands on every single other document they've ever produced since then that kind of covers this ground that's, you know, a manual for assassination or whatever? Wouldn't it be cool? I mean, how many of them will we never see because, you know, they were never intentionally or unintentionally released to the public and they were destroyed and they were lost? I wonder what interesting stuff there is, say, in an assassination manual done after the JFK assassination. I wonder if one could read through it and glean little you know, Easter eggs that make you think, oh yeah, the person that wrote this was probably in on the JFK assassination and is probably trying to surreptitiously insert the lessons of that assassination uh, into this manual or this document. But anyway, that'll do it for this episode. Um, I'm going to be working very hard to try and get something out on JFK in the next few weeks or so. I hope, fingers crossed, hopefully no more disasters will will fall on me or my family. And just as an update, I'm recording this uh, second half of this episode at least a week or two after when I recorded the first half because everything's been so hectic and all that. And I just would like to say things are not going very well overall. My wife is still in a lot of pain, having a very hard recovery. There's a decent chance she may not be able to return to work at all. She's out for another month at least, which will make a total of three months by the time this is over. Three months of no work. And perhaps even more disturbingly or equally disturbingly, I don't know, is that there's a good chance she might have to have another back surgery, which will be a fusion this time, which if you know anything about this stuff, you know that's bad. That's bad. Um, I mean, it's, you know, it's your best option if you're in that bad of a situation, but it's not a good thing to have to go through. That she may have to have a fusion in the fairly near future, which... We had previously been thinking, well, maybe she'll need one eventually down the road, but that'll be many years in the future. If it even comes to that, well, now, because of how things have been going, there is at least a pretty high likelihood that within the next several months, or at least within the calendar year, she may have to have a fusion. And, um, you know, who knows where that ends. But all I'll say right here is that this has been really tough. It's been really tough for me to not either fall off the wagon into booze oblivion or to fall into dark, dark depression like I was in, you know, four or five months ago. It's been really hard. Every day just about has been a struggle lately. And it's tough. And those of you who've been through anything like this know what I'm talking about. And if you don't, I hope you never have to experience it, though life is difficult and you probably will at some point. But it's hard to watch the woman that you've been married to for 20 years and that you've raised two kids with go through what I've had to watch my wife going through. And I'm not trying to make this about me because she's the one that's actually in pain. But if you've ever had a spouse or a close loved one in horrible pain going through horrible stuff, you know that it hurts you too. It's a terrible feeling to feel like a person that you care about so much is suffering so much and there's really nothing you can do. I mean, you know, you can try and do favors for them and help them as much as you can or whatever. But in terms of making the pain go away, there's nothing you can do. It's bad. And to have on top of that, you know, all the financial stresses of how the hell are we going to keep a roof over our heads and whatever. Um, I don't know. I don't know. But I'm trying. Every day I'm trying. So thank you for listening. Stay tuned. Hopefully I'll be able to get out more DHP material in the relatively near future. And I'm going to try to put out some supporting listeners-only material, too, in the coming weeks and months. 
So I hope if you're not a supporting listener of the show, you'll consider becoming one. And if you're somebody who dropped off over the last few months because I haven't been putting out content, I completely understand. And I hope that maybe I'll be able to win you back and get your support again, because I sure could use all the help that I could get right now. Anyway, this has been CJ with another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast, helping you learn the past, understand the present, and prepare for the future.